Nathan Myrick, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me. I'm going to attempt to find overlap in the Venn diagram between my two podcasts. You have permission, which focuses on religion, psychology, and other social sciences, and Pretty Good Vibrations, which focuses on the role that rock and pop music plays throughout our lives. I think that this topic works for both, uh, so it's going to sound maybe a bit like a mix between each. The first half maybe is going to be kind of more research and sociology heavy, ethnomusicology heavy. And the second half, we're going to play a bunch of clips of songs, which is going to feel more like pretty good vibrations. So listeners, that's what you're in for. And Nathan, thanks for being a guinea pig. You're the first person I've tried to do this with. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, awesome. Uh, I'm really happy to be a guinea pig. That makes me, it makes it feel like there's a reciprocity in the world because I usually... I get the feedback that my subject research or research subjects often feel like they're the guinea pigs. And so now it's like the other way around. So I feel good about that. Well, that makes sense because the research you do, which we're going to get into, is in a community that is not very well researched, right? Yeah. This kind of faith adjacent, hardcore, heavy music scene, not the kind of thing you expect academic uh, writers or researchers to to talk about, but that's actually how I found you. I was at the American Academy of Religion back in November in Denver, and I saw the title of your uh, presentation, which is which was "Crowd Surfing in a Wheelchair: Trauma, Diversity, and Radical Hospitality at Furnace Fest 20." And I was like, "There's no way I'm not going to go to that session." <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and then you know, we were able to grab breakfast and talk a little bit more and kind of figure out an angle for what to talk about here. Can you um, give me a brief description of Furnace Fest, this this um, co uh, festival that you went to with your co-author uh, and where you did your research? Sure. Um, so Furnace Fest is a hardcore music festival that takes place in Birmingham, Alabama in September. It has for the last two years and it is scheduled to continue for the next two as well. Um, and in this iteration, Furnace Fest is a rebirth of a Christian and spirit-filled hardcore music festival that took place in Birmingham at the Sloss Furnaces from 2000 to 2003, four years, just uh, kind of like what they're hoping to do this time around. And um, what kind of got me into doing this research was my colleague Andrew Mall at Northeastern University just sent me a text one day with a link to Furnace Fest like hey this is happening what do you know about it and my honest response was nothing because I didn't grow up in in Birmingham or even in the south and so that had never been a part of the the scene I was in all, even though I had been a part of the spirit-filled hardcore and punk music in the late 90s and early 2000s um but I was really interested. I was like, yeah, I, w I absolutely want to do some study on this. And and so that's that's kind of how I got into it. Andrew and I are both ethnomusicologists. We we have some background training in sociology and on his part and um, in theology and religion on my part. But we we look at basically what music is in the lives of people. How do you understand humanity through the music that they make, engage, and participate in? And so that's kind of the the background of where we're coming into the Furnace Fest research project from. I love that phrasing of ethnomusicology, trying to understand people through the music that they make and, in, and listen to and engage with. Like, it's mm. just music is the lens, but it's just like sociology or psychology or whatever in that sense, trying to understand people. 
Right. Yeah, and that that I mean disciplinarily that comes out of the the anthropological roots of ethnomusicology. It, it's kind of like you know you have the the sort of musicology music theory study and then you have the anthropology social sciences and they they ended up meeting at that ethnomusicology space but ethnomusicology comes out of anthropology not musicology it was right. anthropology branching out towards you know musical research and the musicologists going oh yeah that's similar to what we do and kind of going that way but but you know yeah. the roots of the discipline are anthropology so yeah we're we're not so interested in like making some sort of intellectual sense of the music even though that is a part of it but with the we do that with an eye towards how does this make sense of people how do we understand yeah. how people relate to each other and make communities and and uh yeah try I to love it. do good in the world so i love that so in terms of furnace fest as i understand it uh chad johnson who anybody who is familiar with sort of the tooth and nail records story which was the the sort of main christian rock label punk alternative and then solid state records their their side that does hardcore and and metal and all that that when Chad Johnson was ba- when his label was bought out by Brandon Ebel at Tooth and Nail he moved out to Seattle and started working at Tooth and Nail and he stopped doing Furnace Fest but then during covid he and uh, his partner collaborator on the whole thing they were like man like thinking freshly about being together as everybody was sort of forced to be apart and and they decided to to do this thing again. And what was so interesting and unique and maybe not even repeatable about the first one, Furnace Fest 20, which was the one that 2020 that you uh, first went to yep. is that they got all these bands to reunite who hadn't yeah. played in a decade plus. And that's the reason that I had so much FOMO that I, <laughs> and, and so regretted not being able to be there um, because there were just bands that I will probably never get to see again. Or it was just like a very, uh, a unique um, confluence. You guys were on the ground at that Mm -hmm. festival. Um, Can you tell a little bit about the research design of this ongoing project that you guys are working on? Yeah. So um, in a sense, what Andrew and I are doing to study this community is also like fairly unknown and unresearched. We're, we're sort of developing our methodology as we go along. Part of that is just um, an honest assessment of, okay, this is a different kind of community and the tools that are usually used to study these things um, don't really apply. They don't really get at what we're trying to get to here because it's not a specifically religious organization and it's not a specifically you know, generic affinity group, even though there is overlap of both of those things, nor is it localized as like, hey, these people all live in the same place, therefore they have a scene together. Um, And nor is it politically affiliated. It's not like everybody is a certain political idea or a set of ideas that goes to this festival. It's actually this very diverse confluence of people. And so festivals themselves are an under-researched field and specific to, say, Furnace Fest, which has these very... uh, overt but also somewhat inoperative connotations of evangelical christianity and um and neo-pentecostalism that it, it presents a really unique challenge as a fieldwork researcher because we don't have established methodologies for this one of the one of the ways that we're trying to address that is by doing collaborative ethnographic research 
both Andrew and I are are trained as individual field work researchers, PhDs. You know, we go embed ourselves in a, a community, we observe, we participate, we ask questions, we talk to people, and we basically are trained how to gather this sort of uh, sensorial data and then assemble it in a sense that presents a logical narrative on the back end. Um, that takes a long time. And one person does a lot less work than a whole bunch of people. And so Andrew and I started this idea of collaborative research methodology. How do you do it with more than one of you? And then that was so successful in 2021, or Furnace Fest 2020 with a you know brackets one because of COVID, that we started thinking, okay, well, there's a whole lot more here. There's this internet community uh, on Facebook and this is a new phenomenon in the term in terms of academics. Now, obviously, Facebook has been around for fifteen, almost twenty years now. Sure, 15, yeah, whatever. And um, but academic researchers, we take a long time to kind of catch on to how to do this in terms of establishing a, a functional working method of studying things. And so we uh, have essentially started web scraping, uh, which is a terrible term. We don't have an, an algorithm that does it. It's it's human. Um, human generated, but we just, we participate in the Facebook community. We uh, take, take a log of posts that relate to our certain research topics. And then we code and those. This is posts. the a community that's come up organically around Furnace Fest that has like 10,000 plus members now on Facebook. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so this, and this is a, yeah, very, very popular, I guess, and, and active. I mean, it's got, yeah. even right now, there are multiple posts per day with, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of responses. And this is two months after, three months after the fact of the festival. Right. And so it, it's not fresh in everybody's minds, nor is it coming up where everybody's getting hyped about it. It's like, this is a part of the community. Um, and so that's another aspect of it. We've also started um, bringing along student researchers. This last year, we brought three students from Mercer gave them some training, basically fundamental rudimentary training on how to do field work, but then a lot of boots on the ground training in the first couple of days of the festival of, okay, here's how you go approach somebody you don't know and ask them questions and figure out <laughs> whether or not they're willing to talk to you if they're interested right. in this research project, if this helps them out or not. And, you know, yeah. all of these kinds of soft touch things that you you sort of have to experience in order to get people to to open up and share with you, but without being manipulating, right? We're not journalists. We're not trying to get sensational stories out of this. We're, we just want to know what makes these people tick. Um, the journalists and, listening right now are, are, uh, <laughs> have their hackles up toward you. <laughs> hey, you know what? Y'all can come after me. I've, I've worked, done some journalistic work as well. And, and that that's, I, I, I mean, not trying to say that, uh, no, I'm, no, I'm just of dis course, I'm, disingenuous in any kind of journalism yeah. or no, nor that journalists are either, but that you have a mandate to sell stories, uh, and get sure. people to pay attention. Whereas researchers, we also want people to pay attention, but it's a much more selective group. So not to give away the ending here, but just to kind of tease it, like you, you went over something earlier in your answer that is really at the crux of what I find. One of the things I find most interesting about this group of people, and it's that you're saying how it, it's not like a faith organization. It is not uh, an, a, a traditional affinity group, like a, maybe like a mountain biking group or something like that. Right. It's, but what's so weird is that it did start as totally centered around faith. Maybe, maybe not 100%. Like there were some bands where not everybody in the band was a Christian, certainly. Right. And there were some fans that were not Christians, uh, but that mostly came as it got more successful. And it really, the core of this thing was really 
religious. Um, You talked about spirit filled hardcore, right? It's like, that is the sort of Holy Spirit brand of hardcore music. And yet now what's so interesting is, as we're going to talk about, most people in this group are not religious anymore. Right. Uh, And, you know, by far, most of them do not have any sort of regular religious practice, even though some of them still identify as Christian. And yet the community is still so strong. And and everyone I talked to who was there, you know, has these incredible stories of, you know, the fellow feeling and the closeness of it. And it's like, wow, that right there is so interesting. It's like, can you imagine a group of people who all became friends around Pentecostal tent revivals and 20 years later, even though none of them are Pentecostal on it anymore, they want to go do another tent revival. Like that wouldn't happen. They right. would go get beers or something. Like they would not do that again. So that's really fascinating. Right. And what's, I mean, just to, to sort of add some like further complications to this, it's also beer. <laughs> it's right. like they beers go and too. get beers yeah. at the tent festival or the tent revival, you know, and, and that's the, this like next layer of sort of, I don't want to say cultural evolution or scene evolution, but something that was definitely, uh, I'll say fringe 20 years ago within Christian and uh, punk and hardcore was alcohol, you know, and substances, smoking, um, and also drugs, right? Recreational drugs. And uh, while, while, I mean, at Furnace Fest, I mean, recreational drugs weren't everywhere. That wasn't like everybody was tripping balls or anything like that. It wasn't a Dave Matthews band show. Yeah. No, it wasn't a fish concert. I mean, you know, um, but there was definitely like people drank alcohol, people smoked cigars, cigarettes and pipes. Like it was definitely that that vibe, that scene, uh, although there's a lot less uh, tobacco use than, say, alcohol. But there was also very, very few displays of like public drunkenness. I think in 2021, I saw maybe two or three people who were like legitimately drunk. Um, and I don't think I saw anybody legitimately drunk in 20. Oh, no, that's not true. I saw two people who were hungover. But I mean, like, sure, th- that's this is insane like, for a rock festival. I mean, that is unheard right. of. And well, Matt and Carter from the Labeled podcast and of the band Emery, this is one of the things that he has been talking about when he talks about Furnace Fest is that this group of people, for whatever reason, uh, they will act very well if you trust them. Yes. And what he noticed, because Emery's played uh, probably 100 music festivals in their career. They've been yeah. playing for about 20 years now. And he w- talked about how the security was so limited and it just didn't feel like everybody was being handheld and pampered by festival staff the way that it normally does at big festivals. And so right. there is that's another thing that's so interesting. It's like a self-policing formerly religious, mostly not religious group of people who come together to hear religious, overtly religious, hardcore music and punk. You know, it's like, what? Yeah. It's so it's such a unicorn. It, well, it, it is. It's a unicorn, but it also is a really revealing unicorn because it starts to hmm. it starts to uncouple these sorts of um, associations that we make uh, both just generally and as scholars about what kinds of people do religious things and what the actual central value of religion is in okay, society. Say more about that. Say more well, about that. We, we tend to think of religion as a set of assent 
to metaphysical tenets, that you have to sort of agree that you believe these kinds of things and that because you believe these kinds of things and therefore you have to act in these certain sorts of ways, it turns out that religion has a lot more to do, or at least the function of religion has a lot more to do with your social ethics, your values for society and the values you have for other people. Now, I'm not trying to say that religion or Christianity or faith can be boiled down to a set of ethics because that clearly isn't true um, demonstrably, but rather that the way that people approach and value religion has a lot more to do with the way that they have relationships and the way that their relationships are configured rather than about the things they believe about or don't believe about, you know, flying spaghetti monsters in the sky. Right. Right. And so, so that I think is really interesting. I think that has a lot of implications across a whole bunch of different areas of scholarship. Well, and it seems to really apply to this scene as well, right? So um, as I understand it, hardcore punk in DC in the 80s, early 80s, that's where the straight edge movement comes out of. It has, thanks to Ian MacKay of Minor Threat and, and many others in that scene, punk and hardcore, which comes out of punk, have had since then... Uh, always a real social ethic to them. And you might describe that as sort of like taking the, this is going to be definitely um, underbaked here, but like the sort of snarling fuck the system of the Sex Pistols and many of the late 70s punk bands, of course, not true for all of them, not necessarily true of the Clash or the Buzzcocks, but like that kind of, well, we're just out of society and society is bullshit, uh, then in the early eighties is like, yeah, there's a lot of bullshit out there, but we have something here right. and we take care of each other. And when right. the mosh pit gets a little too hairy, we stop the song and we make sure everybody's okay. Yeah. And that, that is still the spinal cord, the backbone of all things, hardcore, punk, emo, whatever, like that sort right. of fellow feeling and social ethic. So maybe that's what makes this group Uh, Such a good example of a religion adjacent group that has nonetheless stuck together in in quite a like in quite a recognizable way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and it's also just to piggyback on that. There's also this element of taking Christian social ethics, the things that we were all taught if you grew up in evangelical Christianity or adjacent. You were taught in Sunday school and you heard talking points from the political pundits who were trying to appeal to you as a voting base or whatever. And you internalized and actually bought into them. You actually, you know, believed and embraced this idea of hospitality or of being tolerant for other people's dysfunction and difference. And that fits really well into that punk hardcore ethos in a way that neoliberal capitalism doesn't. <laughs> and and so that that ability that or I shouldn't say ability that built-in narrative of resistance to what became neoliberal capitalism through the 1990s and 2000s as exploitative, as impersonal, as, you know, sort of ugly corporate greed was already established within the hardcore community, especially the DIY hardcore scenes. And so that was a natural fit to take these Christian social values of tolerance, inclusion, hospitality, and just say, oh yeah, and we can be resistant to this other bigger thing in the same kind of way. It doesn't really give an account of the uh, uh, approach and posture towards, say, alcohol. Basically, everybody that goes to these festivals who is of age, and probably some who are not, are drinking alcohol. Like it is it like they they sell a lot of beer at Furnace Fest. They have yeah. their own beer. Like they have a partnership with Trim Tab and Trim Tab has a fest beer every nice. year. And it's like a 
it's a really good beer. I really enjoy it. Yeah. I enjoyed mine. Drinking um, on the job, Nathan. This, yeah, no, I know, kidding. right? Look at look at the life of being a field worker. Um, hey, but you got to ingratiate the, yourself with the group, man. You, you got to do whatever you got to do to get the that's real That's exactly right. I'm embedding goods. myself here. Uh, <laughs> that's purely why. Nothing to do with anything I like. Um, but also, there's like the Back 40 Brewery, which is right across the road, like literally across the street from Sloss Furnaces. And in two years ago, that brewery got absolutely demolished, not in a bad way, but they had no idea how much the people who were going to this festival, this right. Christian music festival, would be coming to have. So they, by, you know, I went there on whatever day, what, the first day of the festival two years ago in the evening to get a beer with Andrew and, you know, debrief from the day. And the wait staff was just, they were knackered. They were done, you know, yeah. and, but, they, but not in like a, like people are assholes and rude to us, which, you know, you would expect like people they are out, but like we're out of beer and we had no idea that there were going to be this many people. And, you know, but, but then also they went out of their ways. Like everybody's actually been really polite and understanding, but we're like, we don't have this, that's this or this. And, you know, yeah. this whole thing. Um, so this well, last year they were way more prepared and, and able to, to sort of accommodate the furnace fest crowd. But I've got two thoughts on uh, the sort of Christian ethic and, and hardcore and punk thing. The first mm-hmm. is that, and I've said this before, but my faith became real for me in like the latter half of high school when I was able to very easily connect the dots between the teachings of Jesus and basic, you know, gospel, the gospels, like Jesus centered uh, ethics mm-hmm. and punk rock, which was, which cared for the marginalized. Right. It was, you know, it, it cared for the lower class. It was, it was for justice. Yep. And that was a very easy, even non-Christian bands who were explicitly anti-religious, like bad religion or propaganda. Like I didn't have a hard time. Like the way I say it sometimes is like, I had an MXP, MXPX sticker and a bad religion sticker on my car. And yep. I didn't see a problem with that. Right. No. So that, that worked well for me. Um, and then the second is that Ryan Burge in a recent uh, episode of Homebrew Christianity with Trip Fuller, he was, they were talking about a graph that he has where he shows that like, we, we tend to think, I think as millennials that the exit of young people from evangelicalism is largely a thing of the last eight years sort of, and really accelerated by Trump. And it's true that Trump's presidency and evangelical support for Trump accelerated it. But right. the data shows that it actually really started in the mid 90s with Gen Xers leaving. And yep. what they were leaving over was exactly the stuff you're talking about. Seeing the church as homophobic, seeing the church as antithetical to the social values of Jesus right. that they were raised with. And right. then Gen Z are the kids of Gen X and they're just being raised without it. And so it's accelerating in that sense. And yeah, so those are just a couple filling in a little bit there. I think Um, that's absolutely, yeah, that's absolutely right. And I can even add a little bit to that. Um, A colleague of mine here, uh, Doug Thompson is a historian and uh, religious scholar who is the director of the King King Center for Southern Studies at Mercer, where I teach. And he, he actually says that church attendance peaked in the 1950s and 60s and that that's actually the anomaly we're actually back to the mean now the right. uh, historical mean for this this country uh, and western society in general that what we as millennials were sort of brought up hearing as the narrative of like church decline and stuff like that was true in the generation that immediately preceded us because boomers and gen xers bailed out on this on organized christianity well in a certain sense organized christianity they bailed out of mainline protestantism 
Yeah, because and a of lot its, out of Catholicism, yeah. Right, because of the conflation in neoliberal capitalism, essentially. Like, basically, the, the abandonment of the teachings of Jesus in favor of something else. And then went off and either started their own religious groups where we have the Jesus people and then these kinds of things, or just kind of abandon organized religion altogether in, mm. you know, the kind of counterculture uh, hippie move. But that really wasn't an anomaly. The anomaly was the overt religiosity of the post-war, post-war era in North America. And yeah. that's, that's something we need to keep in, in mind as well, that we're, we're, not, we're not living in a new age here. We're actually living in a very, very understandable, normal era of religiosity in this country. It's, but it just happens to be following an age of increased religious fervor. Well, that's true. But the group of people who play at and attend Furnace Fest, for the most part, were raised in an anomalous situation with right. parents and church communities that had a lot of social capital, you know, white evangelical Protestantism, you know, that the Jesus movement um, really galvanized just a massive, I don't know, you might know the numbers better than me, but something like 10, 20, 25 million boomers who basically become evangelicals. And at that point, that's like 10, 20% of the country. It's a huge, you know, you start including their parents and their kids and you've got essentially almost enough people to elect a president, which is what happens in 1980 with Ronald Reagan. This is exactly what happens. And so we grow up in that world and the, the, it may be an anomaly, but (laughs) but there's a reason that if I meet someone today who can talk with me about listening to the demo cassettes and demo CDs of MXPX and 90 pound wuss and Stavesaker at their local Christian bookstore, like we immediately have 40% of our lives in common yeah. and we can yeah. immediately become friends and talk about any number of things. And that's the soup out of which this group of people emerges. Is that right? Right. Right. And there's a part of me and I'm I'm saying that the, I'm giving the caveat that this is a hunch that I have and I don't okay. not I'm not even intent on proving this. I, I just like this is sort of my operating assumption is that the people who are at a place like Furnace Fest and are attending it are the people who actually believed all of that stuff and actually bought in and internalized and lived their lives into what they were told was yep. Christianity. And they're also the people who have experienced the really deep sense of betrayal when they realize that that wasn't what the people who were telling them this meant. They actually wanted them to do something else, probably vote for Ronald Reagan or George Bush or, you know, whoever. Um, That was what they were actually going for instead of what they said, which is what these people bought into and did. And now they're exhibiting all of these values. They're acting in a responsible way towards drugs and alcohol and these other kinds of things. They're embracing LGBTQ and and non-binary gender expressions uh, and presentations and all of these different things that seem to be, to me anyway, so obviously in line with the teachings of Jesus and the idea of peace through justice, not peace through victory. You know, this, this just seems so obvious to me and obviously a bunch of other people. And so that's also a really compelling reason to study this group. It's like actual people who really did believe, but realized that the, that belief system was structured all wrong, <laughs> structured in an entirely different direction than what they were told. I think you're 100% right. I have the same hunch, and it's, it's, a, it's an overlapping subset, but certainly my listeners tend 
to much more likely have been the ones who really internalized and believed it in youth group or at Christian college or Christian high school than the ones who were, you know, kind of into it. Those people don't listen to this podcast. They don't need to, right? It doesn't, it doesn't get at anything that matters to them. If you're listening to this podcast, then this stuff matters to you. And if it matters to you now, it probably mattered to you then. I definitely have some sort of later converts and stuff like that who listen, but that's, that's really where people are coming from. And that's also my experience of the music scene. Yep. Um, And that's again, what makes this so interesting. So let's talk a little bit about that change. Yeah. So these bands, all all the bands pretty much had at least one or two Christians and usually the lyricist with some exceptions. Right. Almost all the labels that put these bands out had distribution through Christian channels, although most of them also had, you know, in Best Buy and Sam Goody and stuff. Right. Capital in terms of your sample of the audience, 71% of them no longer have a faith community. And only about 40%, I, I was just looking at the bars, I didn't see the number, uh, about 40% still identify as Christian in some way, but we but less than 30 of that 40 go to church. Right. And most of most or many of the bands, you know, don't identify as Christian, you know, some famous examples like Under Oath. Um, but then even bands that do still identify as Christian, like maybe Emory, it's in, certainly in a way that is nothing like uh, the evangelical Protestantism that they came out of or that their label was sort of associated with. I, um, so there is this massive, I mean, that is like, uh, first of all, it's a huge percentage shift to, to happen in less than a generation's time. And then for this group to still be so congealed, so going so strong for it to still be meaningful. Um, why do you think that is? I mean, we've talked a little bit about that, but is there more to say about why you think this has really stuck together, held together for so long? Yeah, uh, I can. And, and I, I'm not going to, again, I'm going to caveat this by saying the, this is preliminary research findings. I can't say that this is yeah. you know clearly say, stated or shown by the research. Um, but what, was a, a like a cohesive or uh, salient thread, a common thread through all of our interviews and research part- with research participants during Furnace Fest in 21 was trauma. We didn't, weren't asking about trauma. We weren't asking about what sorts of bad things had happened in their lives or whatever, anything like that. But every person we talked to in mentioning or in responding to the question of hey, what would 18-year-old you think now or what's your participation in this scene been like has expressed some form or some variation of I experienced bad trauma and this scene was a safe place for me to process, to express, to explain and 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 essentially eventually heal from or maybe you know or at least continue to grapple with in a way that gave me the strength to continue on in life. Um and for a lot of the people that we did talk to as well, the traumas were inflicted by religious people. They were um, a part, usually associated with their religious upbringing in some way, shape, or form. And so a lot of the the trauma came from religion. Um, at least you could say that broadly. Now, 
if you were going to really get into the, the details and think about this from a critical perspective, you have to work with a much narrower definition of religion, you know, because it isn't necessarily that the religion itself was what caused this, but it was somebody, you know, youth pastor or something along those lines. Or if it was only just, there were someone on this call who were a spiritual abuse and trauma researcher. If only there was. <laughs> yes, you're right. We have to be careful to not over label things as traumatic that may be traumatic for some people or when combined with other things. But I think that either way, whether the trauma comes from the church, a, a youth pastor, uh, a, a parent who's using you know scriptural language to sort of inflict harm, the you know these hardcore and punk scenes were built. I mean, back to the '70s by outcasts of society, yep. people right. who had had rough lives, right? Yep. So there is something in the DNA of the music from the beginning that does welcome in and appeal to people who've who've really had the shit kicked out of them in yep. one way or another, whether that was through religion or not. What's interesting here is that with so many of them specifically experiencing religious trauma that they still find this music, which we're going to hear a bunch of tracks that have Christian lyrics. I mean, oh, yeah. straight up Christian lyrics. And yet they still come and, and almost have a worship experience with these songs. That to me is mind blowing in the coolest way. And that was borne out in the research as well. So many of the people we talked to said, well, this is our, this is like my church. Like I don't attend church anymore. But this feels like church. This is what I wanted church to be. Um, and that was always, I, I think that resonated with me because I think I experienced that as well. Uh, mm. And so it maybe may, means that my ears are more attuned to hearing people say that when they say it. <laughs> it's easy to gloss over things, I guess, if you're not listening for it. But I was certainly, I certainly ended up listening for that and I ended up hearing it quite a bit. Now, maybe that's confirmation bias and that's something you got to be careful of as a researcher. Yeah. Um, but the way you overcome confirmation bias is by generating a, a lot of data and talking to a lot of people and hearing what other people say and having other people listen to your data and go, I think you're just hearing what you want to hear there or no, no, that, that's what they said. <laughs> well, I want to play two song clips and talk about them on this theme. Sure. So I have heard Mark Solomon of the band Stave Saker, I think on a podcast interview somewhere, talk about their song Gold and Silver, which is from mm -hmm. the album Speakeasy. I think it's kind of their closer um, and it's, it takes a, it's a long, slow build. It's about pain, right? It's, um, yeah. it's about losing someone. It's not totally clear if it's losing them romantically or losing them sort of biologically to, to death. Uh, but he's kind of questioning God with this loss and really kind of ends up leaning on language that I think is from the Psalms, you know, under wings of gold and silver. Sometimes we have to hide for shelter from this bitter winter, at least tonight. And he's talked about when he gets to this part of the song, he experiences something that, that he experiences what the crowd is experiencing and it still blows him away. You know, 25 yeah. years later, um, let's play this part of gold and silver and then I'll get your thoughts on it.
So what comes up for you just hearing that clip in that context? A lot. I was thinking about betrayal and I was thinking about the way that the narratives that I internalized as a younger person were triumphalist, or at least I kept hearing this triumphalist sort of narrative and the emotional response that I have to that. My mom has some uh, severe health issues and stuff like that. And so there, there's this sort of triumphalism never, it always rang hollow for me. I was like, yeah, but what about mom? <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. You were inoculated against the prosperity gospel, essentially. Yeah. Apparently not by choice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the, the need, the affective need that I have to just like say, yeah, I just life can really be shitty and there's no guarantee that on the back end, it's all going to be okay. But a night tonight, like a place to hide tonight sounds really good. Wow. Um, yeah. You know? Yeah. I was, I was just thinking too, that like, in religious reality, believers of any faith do emotionally and cognitively, whatever, they hide under God's wings of gold and silver, whether or not God exists. Right. But religion does serve this purpose. Right. Healing from trauma, process, you know, can, making sense, making meaning out of suffering, you know, all yep. that kind of thing. Because outside of religion, it's it's bleak. And even inside religion. But, but I mean, like we're so small, so finite, and we don't really have, like our lives are short. (laughs) And if nothing else comes out of the pandemic, it's this global reckoning with the finitude of our lifespans. And the fact that we really don't have a guaranteed sense of future, like one of those big things that prevents madness at least in my experience and and around us is the ability to think about the future and to have plans for the future and, and to sort of have confidence that the sun is going to come up tomorrow or rather we'll revolve around and get to the (laughs) sun, you know, but in our, our perception is the sun will come up tomorrow when that is taken away and you don't have that sense of assurance of future as a concept. It's this, really, really destabilizing experience. And you start to have to find other ways of articulating and locating your Sitzimlieben to borrow from the Germans, you know, that your your station, your actual being in life and how that is and how you can locate yourself, at least in your imagination, and then to make a narrative out of it, which is necessary. I mean, this is what Sarah Pollitt says is is necessary for recovering from trauma is to verbalize and to narrativize it so that you can actually make sense of it. You can construct something that hangs together so you can have intellectual or mental or emotional health and stability. And so this loss of that assurance of future makes me really think through my ability to construct faith and what that actually means and how do I look, can I locate a sense of meaning, purpose, narrative structure, you know, coherence to life outside of a specific discrete religion such as Christianity? And if I can, can I then come back and say, okay, but this is also like, maybe this is God bigger than the one that I was indoctrinated to believe like if god is the god thing that the indescribable uh unprovable 
inexistent God that we claim in Christianity, then there has to be some ability to make these meaningful connections and associations with life, the finitude, the smallness of it, and the uncertainty of it outside of the narrative of religion. <laughs> like if then outside, it's that kind of thing that I'm, I think that that song triggers for me. Do you have a sense from your respondents and your interviewees that they're doing that? Cause, cause that's my question about this song is like, yeah. if you've left the faith, how are these lyrics hitting you? And and did people tell you that they, that they've kind of come back around and are reinterpreting those words mm. or are, are, is it just happening at like a, a subconscious, like more emotional affective level? Like, do you have a sense of that from, from talking to folks? Yeah, I do. I haven't asked them about lyrics. Or I haven't asked them about this song in particular. And I haven't asked anybody about like, you know, how do you, how do you approach the lyrics of these Christian artists now that you're no longer practicing as Christian? I haven't asked anybody that. What I can say is that the research is showing that that idea of metaphysical, you know, being and meaning is being replaced with community, like embodied and digital community in real time. And so instead of trying to locate narrative or locate meaning in a narrative that's being passed on through a religious tradition, people are finding meaning in the relationships that they inhabit and the communities that those relationships comprise. And so that I think is a part, well, this is also part of what I was poking at earlier when I said that my hunch is that we're realizing something more significant about religion and that it's relationships rather than these metaphys- metaphysical ascents to a certain prescribed reality. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what this research is actually demonstrating is that community, this community is taking the place of external religious narrative prescribed. Here's what's going to happen. Uh, rather than that, it's a much more embodied, much more visceral and temporally located means of making meaning. But uh, under wings of heavily tattooed forearms just doesn't sing quite as well as gold and silver. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. But the thing about gold and silver, and let's just wax poetic about the biblical imagery of this here, is that those are actual materials, valuable Hmm. and precious, but we're not talking about metaphysics here. Like, I have a wedding ring. It's gold. This is a real, like gold is a real thing. So is silver. Uh, Now, the value we ascribe to it is arbitrary, obviously, right? These are not inherently intrinsically valuable. They're valuable because we want them. But that doesn't diminish the the poetic value or heft of that biblical passage, that psalmic imagery. One other song kind of in this line of, you know, the lyrics are, are pretty straightforward Christian and the meaning has changed, but they are these sort of hopeful songs, right? Uh, both of them sort of eschatological sort of in the end hope songs. This is, I want to play Light Up Ahead by Further Seems Forever. So okay. they played, they played with Chris Caraba of Dashboard Confessional as their vocalist because they have sort of reunited. He's the original first singer, but this band released three albums and each had a different singer until a fourth one that they did with Caraba again. But this is from their third record where John Bunch from the band Spittlefield, Sensefield, not Spittlefield, was the singer. And I, I believe the lyricist, I believe that basically the singer's tended to write the lyrics for each record. And this song is extremely hopeful. It's about basically a light up ahead, (laughs) but he died by suicide um, a little under 10 years ago. And so I'm curious about how people might be, you know, and I, and I checked the set list. They played this at Furnace Fest. So let's play a clip and then we'll talk about it. And all these bad dreams, I wait. 
uh, you can see, Nathan, that I was just crying a little bit. That's never happened to me recording either uh, You Have Permission or Pretty Good Vibrations episode. But this context and then hearing that, like, it's just really hitting me this morning. Oh, yeah. yeah I, I mean, my response was just, uh, I was the God voice in my head was just swearing a blue streak, you know, just, just going, fuck, this is like, yeah, I mean, this is obviously someone who is seeking and searching and reaching for hope. And, and then the, you know, then the narrative ending with the suicide is, is in yeah. some ways such an indictment on the emptiness of that narrative. And in the mm. other hand is a reaffirmation of just the temporality of life and that this, and that John left behind something so beautiful is, is something worth celebrating. Even if the ending of this, the way we know the story ends isn't consonant to us. It doesn't resolve yeah. in the way we want music to or life to. I mean, I think that my, it's probably my psychological training in part, but I really kind of put brackets around suicide in terms of, I think in the popular imagination, they're supposed to be this big explanatory key to the person's whole life. But just, just knowing what I do now about, you know, serious mental health issues, like you can do something in a matter of hours that you didn't expect to do, you know, a year, a day, a week before. Oh, and so yeah. I don't know. I mean, it, it's indicative of, of troubles, but there's just enough examples where I don't, I don't ascribe all that much, you know, some meaning, some explanatory power, but not as much as I used to. So further is playing and they play that song with Chris Caraba singing their friend that they've lost wrote it. And it's also in this context of rapid, you know, massive faith change in this community. That's a moment I wish I was there for. Yeah. I don't know if anything around that came up with any of your interviews, but I'd be curious. I don't think so. I was at that, the, the 21 further seems forever. It wasn't Caraba though. It was, oh, it was um, Jason Gleason. You're right. Yeah. yeah it was Jason Gleason. From, who from was the singing. second record. Yeah. Yep. S- same thing applies though. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's make sure Jason gets his due. Great vocalist. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. I mean, obviously, I mean, from a research standpoint, you're absolutely right that we do ascribe a lot of weight and meaning to an ending of life. The last act of, of anybody is dying. And so we ascribe a ton of meaning to that. There's a lot of weight and importance to, to death because it's the culmination of whatever this thing we call life is. But you're right in saying that and it doesn't and shouldn't negate all of the other things that happened in life that you can, as you say, do something within the span of an hour that you a yeah. year ago or even 10 minutes ago would have thought completely impossible or, yeah, you know. or really unlikely. Yeah. I mean, it's just he's searching for something in that record, you know, on that song. Yep. And maybe that it ties in. But, well, let's move on because. I have to emotionally, I'm going to have to sort this out later. Yeah. Let's talk more about trauma being worked out, right? Yeah. So you, you gave me some songs. I have some songs as well. Let's start with one of the ones that you mentioned, uh, sure. a band I love, Me Without You. So this is Torches Together. And, and my reading of this song is essentially like suffering is inevitable. Maybe trauma is inevitable in this context, but the collective brings something to it and doing something together is better than, than suffering or doing something alone. That's my read here. I'll play a clip. Hey, so why the 
it is. I mean, yeah. <laughs> there in in Aaron Weiss's lyrics is like your thesis, right? Basically, yes. <laughs> Basically, thank you, Aaron Weiss. Now you are finishing your PhD at Temple, and you know. <laughs> He's such an incredible, not only lyricist, but he is such a bodily and emotional performer live Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. you you could kind of think of him as sort of the embodiment of what you're talking about. His faith story doesn't quite map on like he's raised in an inner interreligious household and sort of identifies as both a Sufi Muslim and a Christian or Jesus centered person or whatever. So it doesn't, it doesn't fit that sort of like evangelical Protestantism ex evangelical thing. But in terms of the sort of content of your, what you're looking at, I mean, gosh, it's all right there. It is. I mean, yeah. And it's no, no accident that me without you was like one of the biggest draws for the festival when it like in 2021. And then they had to can the back out because of COVID coming back up and some other stuff. Um, I was really disappointed. I wanted to see them again. I haven't, I didn't get to see them again before they, they yeah. closed up shop, but they're definitely in this scene, whether or not they happen to play that particular date. And there yeah. were so many me without you shirts at that, at furnace right. fest. I mean, it, it's like they, they're maybe, maybe one of the archetypal bands here for this sort of, this group, this community. Agreed. Yeah. Like there is so much in there and it's so masterfully woven together. Like, I really do think that Aaron Weiss is one of those people who does not get enough credit. Even though he gets a ton of credit, he doesn't get enough credit for the brilliance of his lyrics and the way he's that he's my favorite lyricist, I think ever. Yeah. I think mine as well. And he's up there with Kurt Cobain <laughs> for me anyway. Yeah. Um, but the, the way that he just, drops that passage from John 10 about a grain of wheat, you know, unless it falls to the ground and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. It's this, this really difficult passage in the gospels where Jesus is in a sense talking about the limited nature of an individual piece of anything, an individual human body, an individual cell, an individual grain of wheat, an individual anything, but that when it, dies or you know undergoes these transformations then it does much more it becomes something greater and then that theme is just expanded throughout the rest of the song and the lyrics into you know what good is one string why pluck one note i mean it sounds fine but like come on what's the rest of it strum the whole guitar yeah strum the guitar right like do the whole thing and so there are so many different directions you can take this one is just i mean basic fundamentals of music the only reason you have music is that it's the relationship between the sounds the pitches the notes the timbres all of these different elements of a song that's how you get music otherwise you just have a pitch right or a Hmm. sound so it's the organization, the relational organization of the sounds that makes music. But it's also something much bigger about life, right? And it isn't just a, okay, you know, strum the guitar. It's like, hey, like, live the whole way. Don't cut off these parts of your humanity of being a person in order to, you know, somehow be more focused or something like that. But hey, strum the whole guitar, you know, make the whole song. Don't just tear out these pages. You know, you can throw away the whole book. It's helpful to have a poet as talented as Aaron to bring this stuff together. But what it's making me think of right now is that even for this largely post-evangelical, post-Christian community, there's enough of the poetry in the text, you know, in the Psalms, especially in the Gospels and the sayings and teachings of Jesus to like provide structure, like, like what I'm wondering now is, 
is Jesus of Nazareth still essentially providing the structure mediated through bands, poets, the the sonic and embodied, you know, the fact that concerts are sort of like worship experiences, both of which go back likely to our like pre-linguistic, you know, proto-human roots of moving and together and making sound together. Like is Christianity still providing the context, even though most of these people don't identify as Christian anymore? I mean, yes, like like the research absolutely bears that out. Like this is pretty patently obvious. And this is again going back to where I started or what I said at the, at the outset of your question was it's telling us something more about the nature of religion in Western and North American societies than we would otherwise think. And it's exactly that. It's that religion continues, or it's Christianity continues to provide the context and the structure of human experience, even if it is not in the metaphysical belief ascent kind of way, but is instead in this much more active, embodied, and practical sort of way, which is really comforting to me because I'm like, okay, so maybe faith can still like maybe I'm still a person of faith. Maybe this is still very real, and and uh, I can still find myself in this because God and Jesus continues to confound the narratives that I want to put them in. Totally. You know? Yes, that's that's very much in line with kind of what I was thinking about it. I was tearing up a little bit again with me without you. I don't know if this is good or bad podcasting. Maybe it's good podcasting to get emotional. In it's a way effective. You don't. You're you're really you're leaning it. <laughs> let's let's do one more me without you song. I know you sent me a bunch, but if you had to pick one more, what would you like to hear? Okay, and this is this is not a favorite. I will I would love to hear new wine, new skins, and maybe just the first. It's an A B kind of song, and it's really two structures, and it's the end of that first structure. Okay, so what did you hear there? A dream, like a, a vision, like a hope for the future. This hmm. this idea of going back all over over all of these things in, in my mind, and I'll, I'm just going to project myself onto this community, right? Going yeah. back over this 20 years of everything that's happened, uh, the optimism that maybe we felt as young people embracing this music, going to these shows and finding our voices, finding our community, and then all of the experiences of betrayal, the traumas, the growth of coming up, you know, and, and wanting all of these stories to be true, but struggling to figure out how, in fact, they could be true when the mountain of evidence is against that. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then getting to a place where like, hey, I, I'd like I'd like to write a sequel. Can we start this over again? And I like to call it New Wine, New Skin. And then it, it moves immediately from that into the next, in my mind, next logical question that you would ask is, okay, well, is it predetermined? Is this God's will? Is it fortune? Or is it how we choose to live? It's interesting that there is the language there of Jesus, as we have it in the Gospels. You don't put new wine in old wineskins. It will burst them. Right. The metaphor I've always assumed to be like, 
you know, we kind of got to do something new here because what we've been doing isn't working. That, yeah. that, that Jesus in some way has something truly valuable to offer. And even if you sort of de-spiritualize the text and you think of Jesus as, you know, someone like the Buddha or Lao Tzu or some, you know, you think of him yeah. as uh, you know, Socrates, right? Right. A, a person who saw things very clearly in a very special way. Even if you take away all the sort of theology around it, like yep. new wine needs new wineskins is a pretty fucking wise thing. Oh man. To, to yeah. To say is... about the world, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and I think that that, that seems to resonate with this community and, and at least in my imagination, right? At least in the way yeah. that I'm understanding it, that, yeah, this is both old and new, but it's different. And it, it's it's still wine. We still understand what right. you do with wine, but it's not the same wine and it doesn't get to go in that same package. I love that. And it leads really well into a song that I wanted to play by another band that did perform at mm-hmm. that first Furnace Fest, the one that you went to, and that's Touche Amore. Oh, yeah. So let me set up this song. This song, Benediction, is about... The vocalist, he, he mostly doesn't sing. He mostly yells. I guess you call him the singer, uh, yep. Jeremy Bohm. And it's about his mother's passing. And, and a lot of the, the songs on this record are about that. But what's so interesting here is he's talking about the the burial, like the, the graveside memorial service. Mm-hmm. And in the chorus at the sort of emotional peak of the song, the lyrics are quoting a hymn that her friends are singing. And then we'll talk a little bit after we hear that part. You left the hole in this earth And you paid for it up front I had to fill it with dirt While your friends sang the song May the Lord Mighty God So you don't know if Jeremy or the speaker in the song actually believes that the Lord, the mighty God will bless and keep his mom forever, will grant her peace, right? Or even everyone there singing the song. There's this, it's just an incredible, it's a simple use of like quoting something rather than saying it himself but he puts it right at the emotional peak of the song. It is, those are the words that hold the song together that sort of give it it's, here's me doing a little musicology, a little songwriting. Like that's what gives that song, you know, sort of its biggest weight. And that little bit of distance of just quoting the hymn rather than singing it himself, I think is, is really indicative of kind of what you're describing, maybe less so what you're describing going on at Furnace Fest, but certainly the sort of interior push and pull you've been describing in your own mind that I resonate with and that we can assume plenty of people who go to Furnace Fest or listen to this podcast, you know, that sort of tension in there. I just think it's really, really powerful. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely agree. And I think it does two things. Uh, well, it does more than that, but it does two things that are really salient to what you just said. The one is that it presents something that is recognizable as not just a religious 
ritual, right? The, the ritual of the benediction, may the Lord bless and keep you and all, and these kinds of things. It takes that and it sets it in a different context, but it leverages the, the freight that that ritual carries in Western society. Cause we all understand the ending of a church service. You've all like, we've all seen a movie. We've all seen TV where this happens. And so it has this kind of these legs, I'll say, that carry it a long ways across the spectrum, not just to religion, but it also marshals all of those really important and inescapably human concerns, fears, and and desires of, my God, my mom's dead. I would really like for her to not be gone forever. I would like the hope of resurrection, to use you know biblical languages. I would yeah. like to get to see her again. And maybe in that moment, I can also embrace that comfort, that hope, because I need that. And this is again, the brilliance of it, maybe why it works. It holds it in tension because of its, because of taking it out of the context of church service and the the end of the mass and the ritual and putting it into the climax of a metalcore song that gives it this real strong question. You're just like, oh God, I hope so. <laughs> you know? And Honestly, at a certain point, the fidelity of belief, of internal mental ascent to whatever metaphysics go on in the afterlife isn't really important. It doesn't matter at that moment whether or not Jeremy believes this stuff. It's that the ritual and the act of saying it and expressing it in the community that is participating and singing along is the kind of new ritual, new wine and a new skin that's needed for him at that moment. Yeah. We're going to do one more song and it's going to be an As Cities Burn song. I'll let you choose which one you want to hear, but I'm doing that in part because Aaron Lunsford, the drummer of As Cities Burn, is a previous guest on Pretty okay. Good Vibrations. So <laughs> yeah. if you want to hear more from him, you can go back and listen to us talk about uh, early 90s debut rock albums. Awesome. <laughs> which feels awesome. a little a little bit of there's a little distance between that and this topic, but let's hear from his band. So if you have to pick one as City's Burn song, which one do you want to hear? Oh boy. Okay. Let's do throw let's do into the sea. Okay. Well that's good because we're and then I'm gonna have you tell a hopeful story to close out because this has gotten dark and deep and very emotional for me. Okay. Which part do you want to hear about this from this track? Maybe the last 30 seconds of the song. Wow. Anything with any kind of eschatological hope is just making me cry today. Jeez Louise. It's that kind of time in the world, man. It's the era yeah. we live in. Yeah. I mean, the wind turns you to sand in the hands of children on the shore. Yeah. Whew. Go go throw yourself into the sea, right? That That's Jesus saying, you can say to this mountain, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. It's also and, Jonah. And it's all, that's right. That's right. It's also Jonah and Jesus. Yeah. Jesus is quoting Jonah here, but the sign of Jonah. I mean, Jesus pulls a lot from Jonah. Yeah. And so 
we've wrestled with this passage since the can the closing of the quote unquote closing of the canon, you know, right? Right. Because nobody's moving any mountains, right? So right. <laughs> that doesn't it, seem to be happening. Yeah. I mean, although I mean, they're certainly trying here with a. Uh, Topping mountains and you know the Appalachians and mining, but but this is this is a little different. Here. Oh, We're not, geez, yes, these are yes. not the same things. And the whole song has been this. It's been a bitter quotation of, or, or sorry, bitter citation of Jesus's words. It's like, well, it's all right underneath it. Nobody's back is straight. You know, it's all right. It's all right. Like this very like kind of it just. It isn't. That's not faith. Like faith doesn't move mountains. I can believe with all my heart and go walk up to that mountain and say, throw yourself in the sea. And you know what? It's not going to happen because that's not what faith is. That, yeah. And that's that's the 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 tension of Jesus's words. And I think that Cody brings that out brilliantly here and, and says, OK, yeah, but eventually the wind does erode the mountain. Eventually it is just the sand on the shore. And yeah, kids do scoop that up. You're playing with mountains right there when you're out at the beach hmm. millennia ago, but it's still the, that's still where that comes from. And it, it hurts deeply because it's, it seems to me to be true that that is a hopeful, like that's an actual hope you can, you can hang on to in an intangible kind of way, even if not in our lifetime or anybody's that we know. Yeah, I'm reading through the lyrics and it's basically like, you know, everybody is a failure in this light, right? right? So if yes. you're comparing it to, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could tell this mountain, go fall into the sea. Well, no one apparently can do that. So either that is something that Jesus got wrong or it's something that someone ascribed to him and they got wrong, or it's some sort of poetic thing that you know, those of us who are taking it more literally as we were raised to do, we can't quite make sense of it. Right. Maybe right. there's some deeper poetic meaning, but it's not that's not really the one we were given growing right. up. And so then it's this like the failure is baked in to the call because it's actually impossible. And yet, if you zoom out and look with sort of geological time, well, then it absolutely does happen. Yeah. And so I, I just love that sort of uh, repositioning of the question, you know, in a different time scale and the hope there. So it might be true that none of us can lift a mountain and send it into the sea, but I do want to have you close by telling a story of people lifting a person in a wheelchair. Yeah. Um, and you, you actually saw this same guy at two shows. There was the labeled podcast, a pre-party at a venue before the festival. And then you also saw him at the festival. Can you, can you tell that story? Yeah. So Andrew and I were at the label podcast, uh, Prefest show on Thursday night before the before Furnace Fest in a, in a brewery in Birmingham, and there was this guy who was you know in the in a wheelchair, obviously a paraplegic, and was you know rolling around the bar in the venue and had been there for the other bands. As Cities Burn actually was one of the opening bands at that show as well. Wow. And during the Emory set, he this guy got lifted up in his wheelchair and he crowd surfed around the bar and eventually crowd surfed right up onto the stage. And the guys from Emory were just like, hey, man, this is awesome. And they just like got him. He got wheeled over to the side of the stage and he just got to sit there and like jam out with the band for at least that song. And maybe I think just the rest of the set, it was towards the end of the set. So it was maybe only a couple of songs, yeah. but it was it was really this cool moment of, oh, wow, this is this is a different festival. This is a different crowd than we expect at a hardcore punk rock show. That's, you know, that kind of radical hospitality, that radical recognition of 
we as a community can actually do something to overcome the limitations that life has placed on you, you know, or whoever, and give you this experience. And he, this guy also was crowd surfing at the Every Time I Die concert. And uh, I didn't get to take a picture of it, but somebody from up near the stage got a really great shot of him held up at the barricade, the you know, crowd surfing his way up to the front. It's a really compelling photo. Um, yeah. I mean, it just makes me, it might be that there is sort of a beyond this life hope right? Like a, a, a conscious experience after these bodies die. Mm. It may be that the only version of that that we get is in community together yeah. while we're still alive. But even if there is sort of like if God exists and that love is real, which is my fervent hope, but I don't know it for sure. Same. The way that we experience that supernatural, that sort of God's level love is always mediated through our experiences while we're, at least while we're alive, it, it comes through our bodies, our brains, and usually through other people's bodies and brains. Exactly. And this scene's resilience and sort of determination to continue to exist and to even, like you're saying, like we've been saying, to to take the language of what we were given as kids and reinterpret it, challenge it but use it and, and rethink it and, and sort of make new poetry with it, make new manifestos out of those words is just like unendingly interesting and really encouraging to me. I just, man, thank you for doing this work. I feel like I got to do more work in this area myself. Cause I'm just, I'm really moved by it. So thanks, Nathan. Gosh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me and giving me the opportunity to share this stuff. And, and, um, Thanks for all the work you're doing as well. This is a super cool podcast <laughs> to listen to more of them. <laughs> Appreciate it. Yeah, man.